Welcome back to Let's Talk About God, your favorite podcast. Podcast you just are dying for the next episode to release because you can't wait to talk about God. Okay. <laughs> you sold me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today to talk about God. Thanks for using your time to learn a little bit of something instead of just listening to the radio or I don't even know if people listen to the radio. I don't. I do, but I'm old. Old that people listen. You, you'll find out that there'll be a stage in your life where you stop listening to music and you start listening to talk radio. That's when you know you're I getting old. So. I think that's just you. No, I it's think a that's thing. your generation because my generation didn't care too much about the radio. Well, I, we got iPods too early. Well, then you'll stop listening to music and just listen to nothing but iPods. I that's already do that. But that's when you know. Well, then you're old. No, I'm not. Well, you're old. I'm relevant. That's the most relevant thing you could do right now is is get rid of the old radio. So you're saying I'm not relevant? I'm just saying that radio isn't relevant. I'm leaving the studio. <laughs> I'm out of here. I've been deeply hurt and offended, folks. I'm saying that a podcast like we're doing right now is the future right. and the present. Which means I'm relevant. Which means you're relevant. Ah. You're so relevant right now. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know what to do. I don't know. All I'm saying is this. I'm very much inspired to talk about our topic There today. you go again. You have to just do that little segue every month. I hope every we do this we podcast do this. without error. Oh. <laughs> so we don't have to do it again. <laughs> I'm rubbing my temples, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. If you could just see in the studios, I'm rubbing my temples right now. Today on Let's oh. Talk About God, we are talking about the inspiration and the infallibility of the scriptures, which is really, really exciting. Great topic. I think you're going to like it a lot. It actually is, because if there's anything, if you're a believer, then if there's anything that is central to your faith, it is the Word of God. That's right. And so if you have doubt about the central force of your faith, obviously Jesus is the central force, but the, but the, the source, which yeah. is the Word of God, if you have doubt about it, then your faith crumbles and, and it's, it's sort of foundational. So if we can talk about today how the Word of God is reliable, dependable, uh, and you're able to see how that, that, is, that can be proven, that that's that's something that has been very much established, then I think it helps you to be able to move forward in your faith with confidence. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Excuse me. 30-second definition of the Bible's inspiration and infallibility. It is the belief that every word of the Bible is completely inspired by God and therefore is without error. Is that simple enough? That's pretty good. I might be able to top it. Do it. I'm... My 30-second definition is that every word of God that he has uttered is true and trustworthy. That's good. I like that. It's like compact. There you go. Nice. True and trustworthy. True and trustworthy. But for real, what we're saying today is that, like you said, every word, every word he's uttered, every word that's in the scriptures is completely inspired by God. That Nothing is purely human. Nothing is, is, is left up to just the human author. God was always involved. And then the natural conclusion is that if God inspired it, well, then it must be true. It can't be false. God is without error in who he is and everything that he does. 
and that applies to his word. So let's talk about the Bible's inspiration first, and then we will talk about the fact that it is infallible or without error, that it's impossible to fail. But that's kind of built on it being inspired by God. So um, I'm going to give you an anchor passage, and then we're going to actually kind of break this down into what it means. But I really felt like including this passage because this is the key passage that we use to put forth the fact that the Bible is inspired by God. So anchor passage is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This understanding is reflected through all of scripture, but I think it's most succinctly placed in here. So it's breathed out by God or it's God breathed. It's inspired by God. When we think of breath, we think of God breathing life into something. Um, so we know that it's God breathed, it's God inspired, God was involved in it, God produced. We could go on. Right, and when you get into the word for breath, mm-hmm. which is in the Old Testament ruah and the New Testament pneuma, it is also the same word that we get for wind and spirit. That's right. So when you talk about it as God breathed, it makes you think of the Spirit of God doing it because we know that holy men of old wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. the Bible says, and I think we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I think what we can say to our listeners is this, um, the, the reason why that we believe the Bible is inspired and we have this conviction about it, it is because we believe this, that the, the Word of God, your Bible, doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. That's what we're saying today. It is the Word of God. And so um, the, the text of the Scripture is the product of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. I, I like that picture of of Spirit. That So it's kind of like God making Adam out of dust and breathing life into him, or we think of the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, and then creation begins and life comes from it, that there's this idea that God is 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 giving it life. It's producing something living and active and, and, and from him. And so we know that it is a creation from him. Right, and it's that's what makes the Bible unique mm-hmm. and uniquely different from all other works mm-hmm. because it is not from human inspiration. It is of divine inspiration, mm-hmm. and God is life. And so when God speaks there's always life. Yeah. So we'll go down this rabbit trail a minute. So God is life. When God speaks, it is it is life. His words are life. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. So how's that for kind of tying those mm-hmm. two together? And so when God speaks, things happen. Let there be, and there was, Genesis 1 and 2. So he's let there be, let there be. Anytime God speaks, things happen. Things are created. Things are initiated. And why we say that is so relevant is because when you open the Bible and you read it, it's not a dusty old book of antiquity. It is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word. It is still the living Word of God mm-hmm. that even though Genesis, in Genesis, uh, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were written thousands of years ago, okay? Even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written 2,000 years ago, it's still alive. It has it's, It pulsates with life mm-hmm. so that when you read it, it resonates with you. It speaks to you. It touches your spirit, your mind, your emotions. Be, why? Because it's just not a humanly inspired book. It is the divine, living, pulsating Word of God. And God, God's life lives on forever. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. 
Yeah, it's not a, it's not just a historical work to just study and get these sort of random facts from. It is re- just as relevant today as it was then. Well, liberal and it's transformative, and, and a lot of liberal theology treats the Bible like it's a book of inspiration, not a book that's inspired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm reading it to get moral thoughts and good stories and philosophies and and um, and it you know we don't take things literally. There's there's more metaphors there to just try mm-hmm. to improve the human race, but that's not that's not when God said it. He said it and He meant it. Yeah. So let's move on to a term that I think will help you. It's a little bit technical, but it sort of sums up what we believe about the Word of God. We believe in what's called the plenary verbal inspiration of God, and it's really what we've been telling you this whole time, but it's a kind of succinct way of saying it. So plenary simply means absolute. So what we mean is that every part of the scriptures are inspired. It's not just certain books, certain parts of the scripture. It's not just the New Testament or just the Old Testament. It's not just certain subjects like, well, if it has to do with salvation, but not history or you know, X, Y, Z, um, we believe that all of it is inspired. And then verbal. Verbal doesn't mean that we're saying that the Holy Spirit dictated it in the sense that there was no human involvement. It simply applies to the words of Scripture. So every word of Scripture was inspired by God. There were no words that were not inspired. Plenary verbal inspiration. Right. So with plenary, you, you cannot say some parts are more inspired than others. You can never do that. Mm-hmm. From the beginning to the end, you say that from Genesis 1-1 to all the way to Revelation, end of Revelation, you say that all those are inspi- inspired. Yeah. And I think I like the idea that verbal doesn't mean that it's dictation because there there has been a thought, as theologians have dealt with this through the centuries, that that's exactly what happened, that God, that men became robots. Yeah, God just kind of like seized them. And they just started... You know, you've watched some science fiction shows where somebody gets seized by something, a spirit or force, and then they start writing robotically, yeah. as, and their eyes glaze over, and and that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. That's not what happened at all. Um, God, God uses human words. I, I want to put it this way: Scripture uses human words in human language, penned by human authors, reflecting human styles educational background, cultural setting, and historical situation. Yeah. So he uses all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay? But each word, and this needs to be stated, each word, and this is the verbal part, each word is the exact word which God wants at that point to express the message. That's good. But he just gave that to the person as they were writing. Yeah. He was able to preserve their humanity, their personality, their interests, while at the same time saying exactly what he wanted to be said. Right. It's pretty crazy. And I just want to say this about inspiration, why this is so important, so that our listeners are kind of grabbing this and saying, okay, this is really important today. Uh, Inspiration keeps um, why, why why is it so important that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? All right, here's why. Inspiration keeps the man of God from speaking error. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to say through plenary and verbal, is that it is God's inspiration that kept the man from saying something or writing something that he shouldn't have. Yeah. Because he was under the the directive of God Almighty through the Spirit. Second, inspiration secures the accuracy of what is written. So you can trust it. That's mm-hmm. why I said it's true and trustworthy. All right, and then third, it preserves the revelation. And there is a difference between revelation and inspiration. 
You ever thought about that? Yeah. So revelation is the communication of information, but inspiration is the preservation of the communication and the information. The 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 God given, God perfect, correct preservation. Is right. What you're saying exactly. Yeah. It's so so the revelation is the communication. God revealed things to Moses, and and so now Moses has revelation. Mm-hmm. What do you do with the revelation? I want you to speak it, and I want you to write it down. Well, how do I speak and how do I write it down? You're going to speak it in this manner, and the Spirit comes on mm-hmm. him, and then he says it as he is in by the as the Holy Spirit moves on him. Yeah. So, so there's, and let me just say this: every time a, a writer in the Old Testament or New Testament spoke or wrote wrote the revelation of God, Evan, think about this: it was a spiritual moment. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that for just a second? It was a spiritual experience. So it wasn't like again. You know, I'm, I've authored a book before, and I've written many, many papers, and I've written, but but when I wrote a book, I, I was I was inspired by things I had heard, things I had studied, things I had read, but that's different when you're inspired by God. Yeah. Okay. And so I I wasn't having spiritual moments, um, but but when you have a spiritual moment of inspiration, uh, all right, your grandfather uh, just wrote a book, mm-hmm. and is going to have it published, and he's 80 years old. And your grandfather was was telling me several times, he said, I've had moments, he said, where I actually felt God while I was writing. He said it was like I was having a spiritual moments. Yeah. Now, what he wrote is not the equivalent to the Holy Scriptures, but maybe that's the closest we can say that you can even today have where God, I mean, I know what I've been writing sermons and messages. I've been doing this for 30-something years now. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to write, I'm pumping them out every week. There have been times, man, I have had the Holy Spirit just come down on me, and I can just, I'm writing, I can't type or write as fast enough because mm-hmm. he's just giving me inspirement. But again, that's not the Word of God that's the, the canon, you know. Yeah. But, but just think if you're having that kind of moment, and this is for... <laughs> This is the holy record. Yeah. The holy scriptures. Think how powerful that moment They were is. having spirit. So I think we ought to talk about this. These men were having spiritual moves of God upon them. The holy spirit, they were carried along by the holy spirit. And as we'll see in just a little bit, they knew what was happening to them. This was not kind of under the radar. They, I think they knew when they were writing scripture, especially Paul, and when others had written scripture. So I don't think this was lost on them. Oh, that no, God they was weren't doing in, something special. Yeah, they weren't in a trance. They knew they were having a moment, mm-hmm. a divine moment, again, of revelation. Yeah. Of revelation. Well, let's check out the Old Testament first and kind of get a background for uh, inspiration of scripture in the Old Testament, and then we'll check out the New Testament. So Moses receives tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So just right there, the Ten Commandments are inspired because they are actually literally written by God, which is kind of crazy. The prophets receive direct words from God. So we see in 2 Samuel 24, 11, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Gad. So we know that, that they got these direct revelations, these direct words. And the same thing is, you know, the word of Yahweh came to Solomon, to Elijah, to Isaiah. It's kind of a similar phraseology there of the word of the Lord. Well, let me give you something that may help. It's, it's, it's often called the introductory formula. Mm-hmm. So an introductory formula indicating divine revelation. Yeah. That's what theologians call that. So you you know, you were using the word Yahweh. Our our listeners would probably be more familiar in the Bible the where Lord. they're reading it says the word of the Lord, you know, or thus says the mm-hmm. Lord. Yeah. Those are introductory formulas that says, get ready, here mm-hmm. comes 
Revelation. And fun fact, if you see Lord in all caps, that is Yahweh. Or Jehovah. Yes. That's right. It's good. Just a little Bible fun fact for you today. <laughs> You're just a Trevor Trova trivia. <laughs> Uh, we've got other passages refer to the prophets actually writing down the words they received. So we see Isaiah 8.1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to, I'll let you try and pronounce it. Mahershalal Hashbaz. That's great. The longest name in the Bible. That is There's awesome, another little dude. trivia. <laughs> Mahershalal Hashbaz. I want you to name your first child Mahershalal Hashbaz. No, do not do that to Deal. my grandchild. <laughs> I don't even know how to like shorten that to make that cool. Your mother, anyway. your mother would have a fit. <laughs> but Dad told me to. I mean, it'd be funny. It'd be fun. We'll give him a cool middle name or something. Anyways, uh, so so we've got that. So we see in the Old Testament that there is this there there is inspiration. There is we know God is speaking to a prophet. He's writing th- writing down the Ten Commandments. He's telling prophets to write things down. So we see inspiration in the Old Testament. Now let's move to the recognition of the Old Testament and its inspiration in the New Testament. So people in the New Testament seeing that the Old Testament was inspired. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures? Then cites the Old Testament. Simple as that. Jesus saw the Old Testament, not as just historical writings, as scriptures. Paul does the same thing, Romans 1, 17, talking about the scriptures for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He sees the Old Testament as authoritative, as relevant, as inspired by God. So this is, you know, that nothing's changed in the Old Testament. You go to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, you have heard or it is written. You know, when he combated Satan Mm -hmm. three times, he said, it is written. Yeah. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, worship the Lord your God, him only. So do you notice he's quoting the Old Testament? So Jesus, right from the beginning of his ministry, is quoting and affirming the authority of the Old Testament. And so the New Testament does treat the Old Testament as inspired. I mean, even Jesus said as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale— even so, the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. And again, he's affirming mm-hmm. the Jonah story. Yeah, it's not just a story. He made he made reference um, uh, to Daniel. Mm-hmm. You know. So anyway, yes, yeah. Jesus Jesus himself did it. And it's even important to note to note that anchor verse, Second Timothy three, three sixteen. At the time of that, the scriptures were the Old Testament. Yes. They weren't the New Testament there at was that no point. New Testament. So as he's telling Timothy that, that the scriptures are profitable for all of these different things, he's talking about the Old Testament, which honestly, before we move on to the New Testament, read your Old Testament. It's inspired. It's good. It's profitable for you. Um, Jesus quoted it all the time. The New Testament quotes it all the time. Um, uh, the, the earliest you know, church pastors and fathers and everybody like that, they quoted it all the time. Read your Old Testament. It's good stuff. All right, so the New Testament. Um, Paul recognizes his own writings as inspired, which is kind of crazy. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So we've got a command of the Lord here. Paul even makes a, a, a distinction here that I think this would be kind of fun to talk about. 1 Corinthians seven twenty five. This is Paul. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now this is interesting. 
and maybe maybe we can talk about this. The Apostle Paul once again affirms, hey, sometimes I get commands of the Lord. I'm inspired to give you direct revelation of the Lord. But at this moment, when Paul gives this little suggestion, he is now giving his opinion, but it's in Scripture. So is it still inspired, or is it just his opinion because he said so? It's not opinion. There's revelatory authority, and then there is apostolic authority. And I think he's operating at that moment in his apostolic authority, and that apostolic authority is a different kind of authority than revelatory authority, because revelatory authority comes directly Mm -hmm. from God, and that's what you're saying. Apostolic authority comes from his role and function. So it's not from revelation, it's from his role and function Mm -hmm. as a... Uh, in that office of the apostle over the churches, so I, I I still think that if you if you say it's not inspired, then you're saying then there's a part of the word of God that's not inspired. Your whole thing breaks down. The whole thing yeah. breaks down. So it, it it can there be different kinds of inspiration? I think it could fall under the total umbrella of God is still working behind the scenes and inspiring Paul to say this even as Paul in his own mind says, hey, I didn't receive a direct revelation, a direct word to say what I'm about to say, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't still kind of under the radar working in his mind. And and that apostolic authority is also still based on his revelation. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. So so it's still not that he's winging it, freelancing it. Is he still basing it on what he knows? Mm Mm-hmm in his revelation from God. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't get yeah. big, I wouldn't get bent out of shape. People are all, you know, the critics are always trying to find stuff. Look, the word a the and <laughs> of uh, also mm-hmm. they're in the Bible. Yeah. Now, they don't carry any weight. They don't tell me how to live, serve God, but every a and the is inspired. If it's in the Bible, it's inspired. So does that carry weight? No. So my point is you have to take that in its context and you have to take it within with what Paul is actually saying. And he's saying, this isn't something the Lord directly told me to do, but we've got an issue here. I don't have a command from the Lord. So the next step for me is I've got to make a decision and I'm going to do it apostolically, and I'm going to do it as one who has received commands from the Lord who understands the mind and the heart of God. Mm-hmm. So I feel real confident in telling you this. And I would even say this. I could. I would even say this. Paul is still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what he is giving is not something that's binding to all believers. It's right. A, it's, an, it's an inspired option. And what what he gives on marriage and on celibacy and, and and on singleness and stuff like that, he's not saying this is binding. Don't get married, but he's saying here's some Holy Spirit inspired good advice nice. and options. If you choose to take it, the Lord lets you have that decision. And I don't have a problem with that. I think that's great that yeah. God would give that there are non negotiables and that God would give me a directive and a command, and mm-hmm. I can just say this is the way it's got to be. Yeah. And then I love the fact that in other areas. God says there is flexibility, mm-hmm. and here's here's some good, wise advice. Now, if you take it, it's going to work good for you. If you don't, well, it may not work so well for you, but mm-hmm. it's not going to send you to hell or keep you out of heaven, but it, it can help you. And, and you know, there's a whole book of the Bible called Proverbs that has wisdom yeah. there just to help us do better in life. Yep. So, again, I think it's great that 
that God did that for us. Yeah, I agree. I just thought that'd be kind of a, a fun little rabbit trail. I was thinking about that one. All right, so the Apostle Peter actually lumps the prophets and the witness of the apostles together. Second Peter 3, 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So the Apostle Peter kind of sees the Old Testament prophets and the apostles as equally inspired. And finally, the book of Revelation actually claims its own authority. It gives blessings to those who obey and then pronounces curses on those who would add or take away from the book of Revelation. So even within itself, it recognizes that it is authoritative. Uh, I'm gonna, and I think all this is great. I'm going to back us up a little bit, and let's go back to the, the, the apostles. Yeah. So you've talked about Paul. You made mention of one of the apostles and Peter, and actually the book of Revelation was John. But let me just go back even to the Gospels mm-hmm. and then Acts and go from there. The apostles were commissioned to speak authoritatively for Jesus. So think about that. He mm-hmm. said, I'm going away but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to take the things of mine and show them to you, and then you're going to speak to kings and 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 leaders of nations and preach, and the gospel's going to be spread everywhere, yeah. and you're going to be persecuted for it. So they were commissioned, so they would be taught by the Holy Spirit, and um, when they preached, they regarded their preaching uh, and writing as God's word. Yeah. So, so, so they had a little different mind, and I think Paul had that because Paul was an apostle. Uh, so I think that's why Paul felt that same way. Um, I think it's interesting that Paul required his letters to be read in the churches mm-hmm. and his instructions obeyed. So he required, just like we read the Bible in our churches today, he said, you need to read these letters mm-hmm. because they're not just my correspondence to you. This is the word of the Lord. And then I think this one has always been a great one. Um, Peter actually referred to Paul's writings as Scripture. He did, yeah. I can't even believe I left that one out of my notes. I know. Yeah. I was shocked that you did. I was sitting here thinking about it. I was like, if he doesn't say it, i got to say this Second 2 Peter 3.16, he, he writes about Paul, and he says that our brother Paul writes some things that are very difficult to understand, but but he, com- he compares it. Mm-hmm. Or puts it in the category of scripture. Yeah. So the, talking about how they twist the other scriptures. Yeah, the other scriptures. So Peter is seeing Paul's writing as scriptures. Mm-hmm. So I think that's and these this isn't these aren't the opinions of the men. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to them, saying, "Again, you're having spiritual supernatural moments. What I'm giving you is." Is for the church. These are inspired. This is scripture. This is what I did with the prophets in the Old Testament. That's how, look, that's how they saw themselves to make it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, yeah. They saw them. They knew about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, even Moses. They knew those prophets and they knew what happened to them. They had the same thing happen. They saw themselves as the New Testament versions of Moses and Zechariah. They were authoritative. I'm authoritative right now. Yeah. And maybe that helps our readers to say, okay, wow, then that's, yep, same way. Because they would have to be, because as they're traveling to churches, it's not that they show up to a church, Paul writes a New Testament letter and drops it off, right? It's like they're teaching and they're preaching in person, and this teaching and this preaching better be authoritative because they the people have to listen to it and have to receive their verbal witness before they then write down this scriptural witness. They've got to spread this message correctly. So, yeah, that does make sense. Well, and then That's you look at the context. They had the Old Testament, but now we're in the New Testament, mm-hmm. and everything has changed. Judaism is now irrelevant. 
now you have this justification by grace through faith, holiness, being filled with the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, how to flesh out your faith, dealing with persecution, false teachers, okay? So they need doctrine, mm-hmm. and God is giving them New Testament doctrine. The, the, the church is not found in the Old Testament. I mean, it's not there. The rapture is not found in the Old Testament. Okay, mm-hmm. so Paul says there were mysteries. Yeah. So there were certain mysteries that, or there are things found in the Old Testament that there's just really no lot of it. You know, the just shall live by faith is in the Old Testament, but Paul expands that thing like crazy yeah. and says you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith. And so there's doctrines. So when they're writing, they're not just writing letters, they're writing doctrinally. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about how most of the letters of of Paul, the first half are theological and the second half are very practical and pragmatic. Yeah. Here's what we believe, here's how to flesh it out. So those churches were desperate because we have we got Bibles everywhere now. We have Bibles on our phone. We take it for granted. Yeah, that wasn't a thing then. They didn't have it. They didn't have a Bible. They had the Old Testament, but they're like, tell us how do we do this New Testament thing? But not even in in every home. Oh you, no, you, know, you couldn't get access to that. Like you had to go to the t- to the temple of the synagogue and hear it read to you. And right, and so now Paul's writing these letters, and mm-hmm. then what happened was, and here's another thing to show you how powerful. So this ought to be interesting. If mm-hmm. I was listening to this, I think this is cool. So just think, Paul writes this letter. To the Ephesians, okay, mm-hmm. or the Thessalonians. All right, they get it. You know, the first thing they start doing, they start making copies of mm-hmm. it, spreading it around. You ever thought about that? Yeah. I mean, that's true. They started making copies of it. They said they passed it around and read to the churches, and they said, you know, if we don't make a copy of this thing, this thing's already gotten a little worn because we've been passing it around. One of these pages got torn, and they started making copies. Yeah. And everybody started because they said, we want a copy of this here. If you're going to make us take it, the church at, the church at Ephesus has now got to send it over to the church at Thyatira. Okay, well, but then we don't have it anymore. Well, make a copy of it. Yeah. Or, well, let us keep it. We're going to, so they started copying it. And mm-hmm. then that's how we got manuscripts. And so there were a bunch of copies made so that that's why there were so many copies that we've had through the centuries and copies of copies because all the, the original manuscripts are all gone. Yep. They've all been, you know, time and age destroyed them. But there were so many copies of copies of copies that were. Isn't that great? Yeah. And and so that's how God preserved the the the, the New Testament for us to have today. It's really it kind of cool. helps us get in the. I'm just trying to help us yeah, to get in the absolutely. mind. Absolutely. That was what was going on back then. It's kind of crazy. It's really crazy. We just take it for granted. We just think, oh, everybody always had it. There's take always it been a Bible. With, yeah, it's always been in one book, bound together. The little Gideon, super easy. A, yeah, the Apostle Paul had a little Gideon, <laughs> a little yeah. Gideon New Testament in his pocket. No, didn't work that didn't way. Work. They were making the copies. Yeah, and finally, um, as we move on to kind of the rest of the of, of church history, the church fathers unanimously agreed that all Scripture was inspired by God. This really wasn't even a question. Um, some had different views on the views on the method of inspiration, but there are just no no qualms about whether or not they were inspired. Uh, then, as we look at the Protestant reformers, they re-emphasized this. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Zwingli all reinforced that the scriptures are inspired by God. This was a major, major, major tenet of Protestantism. The sort of major questioning of the validity of the scriptures didn't happen until kind of the post Enlightenment period. Uh, in which rationalism uh, and and the sort of idea of objective history and higher criticisms, higher criticisms yeah. um, came came into place. So you know, 
in the in what's called the pre-critical area era, the pre-enlightenment era, what you would do is you would take you would start from the premise the Bible is infallible, the word of God is true, and then you would use your reason to then explore truths within that framework. So if the Bible is true, I'm going to use my reason, my philosophy, my science, my XYZ, my human faculties to explore and deepen those truths. Well, then it became flipped. My human rationality is the starting point. It is the center of truth. And now we're going to see if the Bible holds up to my rationality as, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that's, so, that's exactly and that's And that's what's led to liberal theology. Yes. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and it was sad because the Protestant reformers, for all the good they did, they were very cerebral. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't even the, even when you talk about the pre-enlightenment, it, it was already happening. Very cerebral, very theoretical, and they, they didn't, they weren't experiential. They didn't, they didn't say, how does this then work into everyday living with God? They never bridged that gap. And and there wasn't really a spiritual experience with it, mm-hmm. and um, and that that was sad, yeah, because there were really bad consequences that came out of that. Secularization happened because of that, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, atheism. I, I read a book recently by Alistair McGrath, and you and I've talked about this. That it's sad that the Protestant Reformation is responsible for secularization in society mm-hmm. because they they took that rational concept. And mm-hmm. so limited the Bible, kept it in church, kept it to your personal Bible reading, never made it to where it really influenced society. And so as it, it never no longer influenced society, the rationalization, humanism, the enlightenment all did. Mm-hmm. And then it promoted, didn't realize it, secularization, atheism, and humanism. Put the human self at the center of everything. Except instead of God. Yeah. Yep. It's very sad. But for the majority of human history, it was very much a given um, that the Bible was inspired and was the inspired Word of God. Um, I know we've mentioned this earlier, but real quickly, just to kind of cap off inspiration, and then we're going to move on to a, to the infallibility of the Scriptures. When we talk about the method of inspiration, uh, there are some, especially early on, who took a dictation view. And this means that the Holy Spirit basically seized the author, and then they wrote down just what exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to say. But what we believe, and what seems to be very clear, is that the Bible was inspired and breathed by the Word of God, but that God uh, used the personalities, the experience, the interest, the knowledge of the individual's writing to kind of help that. So, for instance, Paul was a genius and an expert in Judaism, and so was able to very much take his perspective um, as an expert of the law and as an expert of the Old Testament for his good. Luke, as a very educated man, as a doctor, uh, as, as a historian, was able to kind of use his views for that, you know. John, probably more sensitive, probably more emotional, the not in a bad way, but he's he's the the apostle of love. You know, James is very into wisdom literature. Like you just sort of take the individual and and you get all of these different perspectives because they're they're different humans from different points of view. You've got the four gospels, like that's why they're different, because they came from different points of view, and that's okay. So yeah. Well like David. David wrote how many psalms, and mm-hmm. David was a prophet. Yeah, we don't see David as a prophet, but he, he was a prophet. And David would write 
about battles and fighting and God being a warrior, and and yet he would write from the viewpoint of a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And uh, he loved the church. He loved the temple. Yeah. He loved worship, so he would talk about the temple. And he loved Jerusalem, so he would talk about the rights about the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. But those were inspired by God, and so those were the things that David was familiar with, and God used him to, to write. You know, Isaiah, they called him the statesman prophet. He was used to rubbing shoulders with kings and royalty, mm. and yet other prophets were farmers. Mm-hmm. You know, Elijah was a rough-looking guy with camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, and um, just tell it like it was. John the Baptist was the same way. Yeah, and um, and so their ministries were limited more to preaching on judgment and and repentance, uh, and repentance yeah, and the coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so God just uses each person to give the message that He wants to give. Yep. Yeah, my answer to that was obviously no, that they weren't machines. He used each person according to their language. I think I said this earlier, but in a different way, their language, their logic, yeah, their education. Their human faculties. Mm-hmm. He used those, uh, but yet what they wrote was uh, the preserved revelation of God. And they, and I like to say this: they were supernaturally held back from writing the wrong words. Yeah, and they were they were held. And I mean, I know I've. I mean, we can identify this a little bit because I know what I've been preaching, and 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 I have notes, but then you preach extemporaneously. And there have been times I, I was about to say something, and I just got a check in my spirit. The Lord said, "Don't say that." Mm-hmm. And I said. Oh, and I just stopped and I moved on. And because so you can be stopped by God. And so that's why I think we can say, yes, the words of God were were inspired. Yep. I agree. Well, as we move on, the necessary conclusion of the Bible being inspired is that the Bible is infallible. Uh oftentimes you'll hear inerrant. The difference between infallible and inerrant. So inerrant says that the Bible is without error. Which is true, but uh, infallibility is a bit of a stronger term because it means that the Bible is without error and it is impossible for it to have error. And the reason is, is because it's inspired by God. And so that's why we talk about the Bible being infallible. Um, So our basis is divine testimony, but that doesn't mean that we can't do apologetic work. So whenever there is a um, proposed contradiction in Scripture, we're going to take a closer look. We're going to study it. We're going to defend Scripture, you know, X, Y, Z. But we're starting from the premise that even if there's an apparent contradiction, you know, even if it's even if it looks wrong, we're starting from the premise it is not. It's the inspired word of God. Therefore, it has to be inerrant. And then from that point of view, we're going to go look at it. We're going to go examine it and then begin to defend the scriptures. So let's look at scriptural support for this. Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Psalm 18.30, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's just shield for all those who take refuge in him. John 8, 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Hebrews 6, 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So our basis is on the truth of God, that he is true, 
He is never changing. He cannot lie. And so he's inspired the word of God and the word of God must be true. Yeah, I mean, again, apologists would give us a hard time of doing this, but we don't care at this point because we're just we're staying within the context of the Bible. But even the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Yeah. And I think another thing is if we keep following that, let's just keep going backwards, is how do we know it's infallible? Because God is true. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? So God is faithful and true. Mm-hmm. He who is faithful and true, I think in Revelation. So he is true. And so God God is not a man that he should lie. The Bible says that. So it's impossible for God to lie. So anything that came from God has to be truth. Mm-hmm. The, Evan, this is why we say that the Bible is the source of absolute truth. The infallibility is what helps us say that, Mm -hmm. is that because it contains no error, if it says that lying is wrong, lying is wrong. If it says, excuse me, stealing is wrong, stealing is wrong. If it says loving your neighbor is the way you're supposed to relate to your neighbor, then that's the way you're supposed to do it. Whatever it says is moral truth. Mm -hmm. And so that gives authority then to our stance to say this is the only source of absolute truth. Yeah. And and it is because we believe the Bible is infallible and that it's impossible for it to contain errors. Now, I know that we might have some people listening right now um, who are saying, yeah, but yeah. and I guess this <laughs> List is direction, off the contradiction. Yeah, there's we've I've always heard these things that there's some contradictions in the Bible. And maybe we need to address that. Yeah. We've got a whole lot of things that we can talk about here um, that that kind of that address apparent contradictions or errors in the Bible. Because oftentimes when people accuse the Bible of uh, of having error, of contradicting itself, of presenting something wrong, it's not that there's something wrong with the Bible. It's something wrong with the interpreter, with the reader, with the way they're approaching it. So here are some principles to actually help you interp- interpret the Bible correctly and get rid of perceived errors. Okay, so I think, and I'm going to say this because I don't know how many we're going to get into, and you, you, you always do a great job of giving us an outline. The very first one you have is the most important, mm-hmm. and we're probably going to spend more time on this because we need to talk about this. Because you put in our notes, what about textual errors? Mm-hmm. Okay, so textual errors. So we need we need to address this. So let's talk about this because we're saying the documents are inspired and infallible. Um, give us Augustine's quote. And then let's springboard off of that. Yeah. Augustine has a great quote. He is probably the m- most important church father from the Western tradition. Here's what he says. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not, I think I did a typo, it allowed. is not allowed to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong or you have not understood. So Augustine says, if we think that there's a contradiction, an error in scripture, there's three things. Either the manuscript is faulty. So like the source that you have, the actual thing that you're reading got written down wrong. The translation is wrong. So remember the Bible was written in in Hebrew and Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. So it's got to be translated into other language. Well, maybe the translation into your language is wrong, or you just haven't understood it. Interpretation is wrong. Exactly. 
Okay, so it is. It is. It's. It's it's possible to have a bad manuscript. Yeah, it's possible to have a bad translation. That's right. That has happened. Now let's go backwards. So have we interpreted the Bible wrong? Absolutely. If you don't do a historical, contextual analysis, if you don't have a study Bible, if you don't understand what's going on back then, you can have a total misunderstanding. Say, well, that's wrong. That's and not to right. be clear, the people who are critical of the Bible who aren't Christians don't have the Holy Spirit, anyways and are not going to interpret it correctly. No, because they're looking at it purely from a rational yes. point of view, and usually from a negative, critical yep. point of view. Okay, so so you can interpret wrong. So let's go backwards. Can you have a bad translation? There have been bad translations. Augustine had one. Augustine, Augustine had, had, one. had some really bad Latin translations that led to some really bad interpretations. I, and I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and do this, and I'm careful, but now I'm going to put it out there. Y'all, y'all who are, and hopefully it's none of our listeners, but these people who are gung-ho, fanatical, 1611 King James Version is the only version of the Bible people. Okay, first of all, you do not know what you're talking about. You need to go study. That's not the only Bible that ever existed. Translate. There were Bibles. There was the Geneva Bible written by John Calvin and his crowd that predates it. So mm-hmm. if you want to talk about one that predated it, and then Augustine had one. So th- there was there were other versions of the Bible, but I'm going to mess up a few folks. Calvinists translated the King James Version of the Bible. They did wrong translations. Now, it doesn't affect anything majorly doctrinal. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But you go look at Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Calvinists believe in predestination. That's not what the Greek text says in all the other manuscripts. Okay, mm-hmm. all the other manuscripts say, and look at all the modern versions today. Every modern version of the Bible translates it correctly because today we have umpteen untold numbers yeah. of theologians and Bible scholars and people who have doctorates and PhDs and have THDs and degrees and can and, and spend their life. This is their their. It says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Mm-hmm. So all you people that are just gung-ho about your 1611, I hate to tell you this, but there are things in your 1611 that are not translated according to the original language. Now, that may be freaking a few folks out. (laughs) Now, does that shake my faith in the Bible? No. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you this, Evan, I want to say this. 98% of the biblical text is not under dispute. And the other 2% is things like the and a it's little errors here or, and there, things or, that don't change the meaning. No, and I, when now we're talking about going back to the Greek text, mm-hmm. okay? So so that's why I said that right then, because we're going to go back one more. But what I'm saying is you can have a faulty translation. The New International Version, okay, which is a very popular Bible, the 1984 edition, whenever it first came out, I gave those, when I was a youth pastor in the 80s, I gave those Bibles out. I don't know how many Bibles I gave brand new free to teenagers because it's written for an eighth grade reading level. So I gave NIV. It was a great translation. Great translation. Well, somewhere along the way, liberal people got a hold of that, bought it. I don't know how it happened. And any NIV translation past then, the translations are wrong. They they went gender neutral and all this stuff. They were allowing culture to affect it. It is not with what the original manuscripts in Greek translation is. So I tell people now, I've got up from the pulpit and said, do not buy a new international version of the Bible. And if you do get one, get the old one that's not been republished. Now, is that wrong? Does that mean the Bible's wrong? No, it means men did it wrong. 
But we go back to the manuscript evidences, evidence, which we do have, that allows us to say, hey, you labeled it a Bible, but I got news for you. Yeah, most of it's right, but you guys tainted it. Some of it's wrong, but we're calling you out. And see, it's able to be preserved. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I don't want to shake anybody's faith out here. Your faith shouldn't be shaken. That's why it is so important, and this is the pastor coming out of me, that's why it's so important you make sure you get the right Bible. Okay, now for me, it's the New King James Version because the New King James Version straightened out all of those errors that the Calvinists put in the in the original King James Version. Kept the beauty uh, of of that language, has is correctly um, translated. Got rid of uh, the Elizabethan English. Let's put it in modern day English. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the other one? The New American Standard Bible has always been. That one's good. Um, the ESV is very popular. Yeah, Holman, or I guess it's just the Christian Standard Bible is like pretty decent. That you're, that's known to be pretty, and and, yeah. and I'm not sure about the ESV. The ESV may have some, but my point is, people love. I love the Message Bible. The Message Bible. So, well, the Message Bible is a paraphrase. Yeah. Okay. People love the Living Bible. It's been around forever. It's a paraphrase. So it's not a Bible for that's that's a direct translation. So I guess what we're saying is you can have a wrong interpretation, you can have a wrong translation, and even the manuscripts. Now, we talked about how all the original copies, John's original letter, gospel, is gone. It's mm-hmm. disintegrated in time. But people made copies of it. Lots of people made copies of it. Now, is it possible that a scribe in copying it may have copied something wrong? Absolutely. I, I, we've all done that. You've double-typed something or made an error when you were writing or you wrote the same word twice we've had those kind of things that happen. But in copying, those people respected those documents so much. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews had this unbelievable reverence mm-hmm. for the word that when they copied it, they were they were just like meticulous. They would go back and read it again to make sure. And the New Testament writers the same way. We have so many copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of the original manuscript that that most that when you look at them and people were so careful like you said 98% of the copies they're all the same yeah the the thing that's really important to look at is we have no original manuscript so here's what we do have our earliest copies of the new testament all date somewhere between 50 to about 200 and 250 years of the original writing which is extremely close. Very close for a work of antiquity. We also have something like 3,000 of those. Now take the Odyssey that, um, that your kids probably read in school that you probably had to read in school. The earliest manuscript that we have of the Odyssey was written like 1,000, 1,300 years. So I, I don't have the exact date, but it's well over 1,000 years. After the original writing. That's the copy of it. And do you know how many of those earliest that we have? We have nine. Nine. To compare. The works of Shakespeare are the same thing. Yeah. So we, we, we read those with confidence. So there's no reason to believe that the Bible had all of these severe, uh, some random monks went in and changed the stories. We have so many thousands of copies to compare them with. The whole Da Vinci we Code. We know that that hasn't happened. So you can trust your Bible. Um, if we can trust the Odyssey, however much we do it, we can we can trust our Bible. We have good text there. So, and you can thank Christian monks that you have things like the Odyssey, like Aristotle and other things to read. They right, those Aristotle. Alive. And again, there's, <laughs> there is no, there is more 
manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other work of antiquity. Uh, and by the way, I'll rant. It, and so isn't it sad that we we trust those works of Aristotle, the Iliad, Homer's Odyssey, Shakespeare, and we make our kids read them in school, even though there's, a, like you said, it's a copy of the original work. We don't have much of it's been changed, and yet we won't let them read the Bible. Mm-hmm. All right, but here I want to go back. So 98%, so when you get back to the copies of the copies of the copy, the manuscript evidence we have, 98% of the biblical text is not under dispute. Mm-hmm. The 2%, amounts to one page of the Greek New Testament. It's pretty good. One page. Yeah. And like you said, it's and a just errors. Like just typographical errors, errors grammatical yeah. errors. And here's the major thing. No doctrine of scripture is affected whatsoever mm-hmm. in these little textual disputes or differences that you have. So I just think that there's two things you have to say is one, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay, and it also means that you you can trust the Bible. That's what we're saying. It's two. Isn't our God incredible that He preserved? Yeah, we don't know who those people were that copied those are unnamed sources, anonymous sources yeah. throughout the centuries. But yet, God even kept those people to preserve that His scriptures came down to us with such accuracy. It's crazy. And gave us all that evidence, all the thousands of copies that we have. Uh, and what's so cool is every time somebody thinks, yeah, sooner or later, though, something's going to come along to prove the Bible wrong, the opposite happens. Archaeology has done more to prove the Bible correct. And You're jumping ahead on us. You're jumping ahead on us. Am I jumping ahead? Yeah. Okay. So those, but anyway, all right, keep going. Go ahead. But I just thought this one is so important because— like you said, we have no reason to believe yeah. that the Bible was severely altered or tampered yeah. with. We have accurate translations yes. that we can trust. It's surprising for antiquity. It's Hallelujah. Crazy. I just give God the glory That's for that. That's wonderful. Well, let's go through some um, some other kind of apologetic, some 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 defense uh, of the Scriptures, of its inerrancy, inerrancy the fact that it is um, without error, and, and kind of address some major pitfalls that people often take when trying to accuse the Bible of having error. Oftentimes they, ex- they assume that the unexplained is unexplainable. So people often jump to the conclusion that since there's an apparent contradiction or impossibility in the Bible, well, then there must be no explanation. The Bible must be wrong or contradict itself. But this is never how life works. When, when scientists discover that there's an apparent contradiction between what they have always taught in science and some new discovery, they don't look at reality and call it a contradiction. They just say, well, it looks like we're going to have to study this more and find something out. And so with the Bible, when we find something that seems to contradict science or history or whatever, we don't just immediately write it off. We do extra research. And what happens is when we do extra research, we always end up finding out that the Bible was right. So for instance, it used to be believed that Moses could not have written the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as he lived in a pre-literate age. But now we have evidence that literacy existed long before Moses came along. But for a while, you could you could shipwreck your whole faith if you bought into the fact that Moses couldn't have written it and X, Y, Z, but you just pump the brakes, you slow down, you let us look into it, and the Bible is always vindicated. Is this where I can talk about archaeology now? Uh, sure, go for it. Okay, so here, here's, what, here, here's what you're talking about. Ar- archaeologists, archaeology 
comes along and improves, and it happens all the time in Israel. They'll do a dig mm-hmm. and find a place, and they'll find evidence that supports the Bible stories. It happens time and time and time and time again. And people are hoping that they're going to find something that will disprove mm-hmm. it. Never happens. It's always the opposite. Yeah. It always it always proves it. And then you always have, uh, ex- if you want to call it extracurricular or external sources that will validate and verify mm-hmm. the things of the Bible. Um, preachers love to talk about tithing. And we know the Bible talks about tithing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus made mention of it anyway. Um, and, and people say, did you know that every ancient religion had a tithing system? It's crazy. So where'd they get that from? Well, they got it from God mm-hmm. because God established tithing. So, again, external works prove that things. Um, archaeology proves that. And then science Science will come along, and and they'll they'll like you said they'll, they'll or, or or some kind of educational area academia will mm-hmm. will determine that that what you didn't think could happen actually did happen or proves that it could happen in the Bible. Yeah. So you you're hard pressed to find, and when there are contradictions, Evan, what I have learned because I've studied the contradictions, there's always an explanation. Always. There's always an explanation. Mm-hmm. And you know? usually a good one, not like a shaky, rocky one. There's usually a good one. And sometimes you need somebody else to help you to see that. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you one. Like when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one. Now, if I was reading that, I'd go, Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're saying, you know, God's good. There's only one person who's good as God. But you're not God. But you're the son of God, or you, and he just called you good, and you're not letting him call you good, then I would be going away to matter. Are you not God then? See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If that's, again, back to your interpretation. But then if you, you, if you think it through, Jesus isn't questioning himself. He's questioning the young man. Yeah. He's saying, why are you calling me good? Mm-hmm. Because there's only one person who's good is God. So are you calling me good because you think I'm God, or are you just patronizing me? Yeah. That's one of our principles, which is failure to understand the context, just not paying attention to the actual context and the characters and the things that are going on. Exactly. You have to have an eye to be able to read these things. So there are, there are principles to all literature, literature, including the Bible. Here's one of the pitfalls, assuming that the Bible is guilty of error unless proven innocent. This is just unfair. The world doesn't work this way. I mean, even in the justice system, we always assume people are innocent until they are proven guilty. We don't assume stop signs are false and put there by some random person until proven true, until the government comes out and says that we put the stop sign there. Like, you don't do that. Like, we'd be dead. We need to treat the Bible as valid until proven innocent. Because at this point, if you just assume it's guilty, you'll find some apparent contradiction under every little rock and behind every, you know, whatever, every corner and everything. So we need to be fair with it. Oftentimes we confuse interpretation with revelation. So we know the Bible is completely perfect, but humans are not. So just because a widely held and problematic interpretation of the scriptures is popular doesn't mean that it's true. So if there's some group or some big denomination or some big sect or whatever that holds a interpretation that would be problematic with 
you know, X, Y, Z with science doesn't mean that it's necessarily true because humans are fallible. At the same time, just because a widely held scientific discovery is popular and, and contradicts the Bible doesn't mean it's true. Some of yesterday's irrefutable laws are today's scientific errors. We've talked about that earlier. So we've got to slow down. We always interpret the difficult by the clear. So we want to interpret difficult passages with the very, very clear one. So for instance, if we look at James chapter 2, 14 through 26, it could look like the Bible is saying that we're saved by works, that James wants us to work for our salvation. But when we look at the literal host of text from the Apostle Paul that we're saved by grace through faith, then we can actually begin to make sense of James and realize it actually kind of all works together and they really believe the same things. But when we fail to look at the clue thing, the clear things, we can kind of, you know, miss out on the things that we need to talk about. Um, you know, there's teaching on obscure passages. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it looks like Paul is saying that they baptized people on behalf of the dead. Or maybe they were baptizing people in in bringing them into the church to fulfill the place of the dead, you know, to, to kind of fill their place. Here's the reality, that we have to interpret these passages in light of the clear passages. We've got to keep our main focus on the clear passages, and we never build entire doctrines on one obscure little thing. But you've got entire sects and cults and denominations who build an entire doctrine on one obscure text and then get themselves into some issues. Give you an example. Mormons. (laughs) Mormons or there's a denomination that says that unless you're baptized, you're not saved, that you have to get saved and baptized. And they take the Mark uh, scripture in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus, um, I think it was a Mark or, or it's either John. Anyway, he says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe is condemned already. So I may be in John. But either way, they take that one scripture and say, oh, it says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. So you have to be baptized. So they take that one scripture and try to add it. And so what they're doing is they're adding a work to salvation. That's no to me. That's no different than saying what the early Jews said that oh yeah, you have to believe, but you also have to be circumcised, and then you can be saved. Do you saying you don't have to be baptized? Uh, no, I'm saying it's not a requirement <laughs> to be saved. It should be an expression of your salvation. Okay. So, but but they take that one verse where Jesus said, "He who believes and is baptized shall be saved." Mm-hmm. Okay, and and we don't believe that you you are saved by grace through faith, and then there are ordinances that are an expression of that faith. That's so you're saying. water baptized to show that you have been mm-hmm. you have been died you have died the old you has died the new you has come mm-hmm. to life. We have communion that shows, and so but they they believe that if you're not baptized, you're not saved. You won't go to heaven. Yeah. Now that didn't work too good for the thief on the cross. That theology. Yeah. <laughs> He, he was hanging on a cross dying. He didn't get baptized, but Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. And when you ask them that, they try to explain it away. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have to try to explain away verses instead of saying, no, this verse supports my doctrine, you have a, you have a really weak doctrine. Here's a good one. Assuming that a partial report is a false report. Now, this is one I think that trips so many people up. 
So people think that um, that just because you you mentioned part of what happened or part of the truth, and I mean the Bible mentions it, that that it must not be true at all. Occasionally, biblical writers will express the same thing, but in different ways from different viewpoints at different times. So we've got to remember that the Bible was was influenced by uh, the, by human characteristics, yet still inspired by God. So let's take um, Peter's confession in the Gospels. And Matthew, it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark says, you are the Christ. Luke, the Christ of God. They're saying the same thing. They're recording the same event, but it's simply that the emphases are different. It's not that the, the recording conflicts with one another, that one makes a doctrinal, a complete doctrinal shift or difference. It's people at a different vantage point recording and emphasizing what happened. So for instance, if two friends told you the same story, something crazy just happened, they would use slightly different wording, but you wouldn't look at one friend and accuse them of being a liar and the other one of telling the truth because they chose different emphases or slightly different words. I think it's the same thing with the Bible. When you've got them recording the exact same event, it's very clear that they're not contradicting or you know that they're trying to obscure something. They're simply providing their perspectives and giving you a different emphases. You've got it. Some of this is almost common sense. How does everyday language work? The Bible is operating through this. And common sense is not so common anymore. It is not. Um, I like to use two terms that might help our listeners, is that when you are reading the Bible, you need to look at what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So what you just shared is descriptive. The gospel writers are describing the event of Peter's confession and— they are doing it in their own words, and they're all saying the same thing in different ways. And I've heard people say, if you get four witnesses in a courtroom to testify on your behalf, and they all say the exact same words, are you not going to go, okay, that's really suspect? Yeah, it is. This has been rigged. But if all four of them give their own description of what happened on your behalf in their own words— and there are variations, but it's still essentially the same story. Then the judge goes, or the jury goes, wow. They don't look at the, the differentiation of the details. They look at the whole and mm-hmm. say, okay, wow, he's got four witnesses. This guy's innocent. Yeah, they, they corroborate his story. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah, that's good. Here's what I want to do. I want to take a, well, we can take a deeper look at a, at a couple more of these. And I think the remaining ones are so simple, uh, we can kind of list them off just to give you something to think about. But let's, let's break down just a couple more of these. The, um, that oftentimes people accuse the Bible of contradicting because, um, because of New Testament citations of the Old Testament. So they try and catch the New Testament writers citing the Old Testament in a false or a wrong way. So they'll say that, you know, that when the New Testament cites the Old Testament, there are variations, but these are easily explained. A citation doesn't need to be an exact quotation. 
You can give the essence of a statement without using precisely the exact words. So the point is that they're alluding to an Old Testament passage. They're trying to give you the essence of the statement, even if they don't quote it perfectly. We do this all the time in normal language. Sometimes there's a change of speaker. So Zechariah, when he's speaking for the Lord, uses first person. But when John quotes Zechariah, he changes it to the third person. It's That's simple language. Sometimes they only cite part of the Old Testament, as Jesus did in the temple. To cite the whole thing would kind of mess up the point that he's trying to make. That's totally fine. He can stop talking then. Sometimes the New Testament references the Old Testament in general. Now, this is important. Matthew says that Jesus moved to Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, he does not cite a specific text because it's not there. Matthew says himself, he's quoting the prophets, not a prophet. So several texts speak of the Messiah's lowliness and to be from Nazareth is to be of low status. And finally, sometimes the New Testament applies an Old Testament text in a different way. So for instance, out of Egypt, I have called my son applies to Israel in the past, but also Jesus literally out of Egypt. So I think these are really important when understanding the Old Testament, because oftentimes you'll see Matthew say stuff like that, like, you know, this is what the prophets say, and then you go try and find a quotation of it, and it's not there, and you're like, hey, is he just making that up? But he can cite a summary of the message of the Old Testament and interpret it um, without needing that perfectly. Um, here's something really important, and then we're going to list off some very quick ones. Assuming that divergent accounts are false. Now, I remember you actually getting this question at a Q&A we did here at the church a while ago. This was a couple of years ago. So Matthew 28.5 says that there was one angel at, at the time, or excuse me, at the tomb, when John tells us that there was two. And so people use this example a lot. Well, was there one angel or was there two angels? How did they mess this up? The Bible must contradict one another. Here's the thing. Matthew never said that there was only one angel. He just mentions an angel. Two angels necessarily means that there was also one angel. So it would have been different if Matthew said there was one and only one angel, no more than one at the tomb. He just mentions one. It doesn't mean that he's saying that there wasn't two. So they don't actually contradict. Once again, this is point of view. Right. He, there were two angels. Yep. So we know from the other gospel there were two angels. Matthew is only focusing on the one angel who was actually active. He rolled back the stone, the guards fell, he spoke to them. So that's what he's doing. By the way, just and we're throwing so much at our listeners. You go back to the New Testament, Old Testament thing, we didn't even mention, there's this thing called the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. We should mention that. Yeah, we should mention that. Because the Septuagint was a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Okay. Because at the time of Jesus, most of them were all speaking Greek. It was very Hellenized. This was kind of the common culture. Right. So it was written in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., before Christ. Uh-huh. So it was the Jewish Bible of the Old Testament in Jesus' time. Mm-hmm. So they would quote the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Well, anytime you translate from one language to another, there are variations. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Septuagint translation could be different from the Hebrew translation that you have in, the, in, in what we have as our, in our mm-hmm. Bible, and it's not because either one of them are wrong. It's just because when you try—I remember I was in, in um, uh, 
Honduras and I had a translator and I was preaching in a big way and teaching a bunch of pastors and I talked about, you know, some people are like a half-baked pancake. Yeah. And the translator's praying, he stopped and he just looked at me and I said, what's wrong? And he said, I'm trying to figure out how to say half-baked pancake <laughs> in Spanish. And so he said a half-baked tortilla. That's funny. And all the pastors started laughing then. But he said, I'm not sure about pancake, because there is a word, but he yeah. couldn't think of the time, so he said half-baked tortilla. Yeah. So there's translation. Yeah. There. So I just thought that that's a big deal, and we yeah, should tell is. that. Yeah, that's very good. Um, now let's go into rapid fire, and we're going to just wrap this up real quick. But uh, these are very small; these are very quick that I think can help you. Um, what's pre- you can't presume that the Bible approves all that it records. So the Bible records David's terrible sin, but it doesn't approve of David's terrible sins. Yes, he was the king, but we can't say the Bible contradicts morality and never approves of it. We've, we can't forget that the Bible is non-technical. The Bible was written in a pre-scientific era. So it doesn't mean that it's against science, that it doesn't approve of science. It is written in a pre-scientific era. So yes, the Bible speaks of the sun setting and the sun rising, but it doesn't seem to de- it doesn't deny how this actually works. We use the same language today. So let's just we, you can't impose these modern this modern language. Assuming that round numbers are false. Remember, we're pre-scientific. So yes, today, when uh, SpaceX is building its rockets, it needs a precise measurement with precise measuring tools. But when the Bible is listing off uh, uh, you know, cubits for a temple or for a design for something, X, Y, Z. Or the number of years yes, Israel would be in Egypt. Census or how it, many, yeah. you know, they say, well, there's very well, sometimes they're rounding. They're just rounding up. They it, they don't need the, the precision that, that we need today. This was the, the way of recording back then. Um, neglecting to note literary devices. The Bible has a bunch of different genres and uses different literary devices. So sometimes it's uh, it's very poetic. Sometimes it's metaphorical. Sometimes it's allegorical. It's meant to be taken in a more spiritual manner, not a literal manner. So we can't read all of the Bible and take it ultra literally without being good readers so and if, picking up. When Jesus says, if your right hand offends you, chop it off. If <laughs> your right hyperbole. eye offends you, <laughs> pluck it, it out. out. <laughs> He's not, yes. not approving of self-mutilation. Exactly. He's trying to make a point is cut off not your digits, cut off the source of the sin. But exactly. he's using hyperbole. It's extreme extremism to get to make his point. Exactly. We oftentimes confuse general statements with universal statements. So here's what I mean. Proverbs 16 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So if you serve the Lord, even your enemies will be at peace with you. Well, here's the problem. Jesus served the Lord perfectly, and he was crucified by his enemies. You know, um, Paul served the Lord excellently, but had plenty of enemies. Here's the point. This is a, a, a normative rule, general rule. But it doesn't mean that it always comes true. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. Well, some people have trained up their children in the way of the Lord, but that child, when yep. he became an adult, made a decision yep. to live a life of sin. It's a general rule. Exactly. Yep. And finally, people forget that later revelation supersedes earlier revelation. So of course the Old Testament laws and expectations are going to be different than in the New Testament. That's literally why they are old and new. This doesn't change God. God is, you know, for instance, love, so we're called to love God and love our neighbor. 
XYZ. God doesn't change, but his way of dealing with humanity changes. And 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 to to say that this is wrong makes no sense. This is like saying that it's hypocritical that a parent allows a 16-year-old to stay up past 11.30 but won't let a 6-year-old. The parent didn't change. The child changed, and the way that you deal with them begins to change. And so that's why we have to remember that the Old Testament laws, yes, they have been superseded. We've moved on from those. And so you'll hear, especially in kind of the new atheism movement all of the time, well, do you still eat shellfish? Do you still trim your beard? X, Y, Z. And they bring up these really kind of nitpicky Old Testament laws. And it's just bad reading when the New Testament has abolished those things and we've moved on because it makes sense to do so. Yeah, and shellfish will give you cholesterol and shorten your life. That is true. And uh, trimming your beard had to do with the ancient foreign religions of Baal mm-hmm. and Ashtoreth and whatever. That's what they did. So if you did that, then it was like you were mimicking idol worship, yeah. and looking like the, the false gods and the false religions of people. So there's always an explanation. Exactly. And But, there, but con, con, contextually, we don't have to deal with that today. Yep. Now, we can make comparisons. Uh, so, so there's always principles. See, you have you have the revelation of God. Maybe we can close with some of this. You say, why is all this important? Because in the revelation of God, all right, you have precepts, commands. Behind every precept or command, there's a principle. Mm-hmm. So even if the precept or command no longer applies, there could be a principle behind it mm-hmm. that is that spans the generations. And behind every principle is the person of God. Exactly. You're going to get a revelation of who God is. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, this command, God doesn't give commands or pre- principles arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. They always flow out of who he is. Mm-hmm. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. Always. You always can trace it back to this is coming out of who God is. Yep. So what? as you can see, that the Bible is inspired, it's without error, and all it takes is the slightest bit of nuance and being a good reader, like you treat other literature, and you realize the Bible is without error. It is perfect, um, and, and this is proven. But look, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I noticed today's episode was a lot of information. It was dense, but it was helpful. It was, it was good. It makes clear a lot of these really difficult things that we hear in our culture today. We hope that you enjoyed it. Go ahead, like, share, rate, review. Send this to a friend who needs this. Um, and we will see you next week, or actually in a couple of weeks for our next episode. 